episode four of Inside Your Head, the podcast and blog that explores psychology, mental health, neuroscience, self-help and related subjects. Here's a short clip from today's main interview. There's a big distinction between what they call poiesis and mimesis, copying and making. Um, and creativity is just making. It's doing something that hasn't been done before. And that can be what we think of as creativity. So writing, coming up with a painting, um, a podcast, a piece of music. Um, or it could just be any any idea that hasn't been thought before. That clip featured the voice of Dan Holloway. Dan's quite an extraordinary guy. He's the CEO and founder of a company called Rogue in Terrorbang, uh, which is a spin-off from the University of Oxford using creativity to solve major problems. And Dan also has the accolade to his name of having been the world creative thinking champion uh, in 2016, 17 and 2019. An amazing guy. Uh, His head is just so full of extraordinary stuff. Uh, You're going to love listening to him. And we uh, have quite a discussion based primarily around the concept of creativity, which is one of those things that as a creative person, a professional creative person, a graphic designer, has always fascinated me. So uh, stay tuned to listen to the main interview coming up shortly. Anyway, I thought today I'd make the introduction a little bit different rather than uh, talking about a specific book or um, magazine articles or anything like that. I thought today I'd kind of give you a glimpse into my own lived experience as someone who, you know, self-confessed I had a breakdown earlier this year and I'm in the process of recovering from it and doing the work, as psychologists say. Um, And uh, let me also, I'm going to give a shout out. I never do this, but I'm going to give a shout out to my amazing therapist counsellor based down here in Brighton & Hove, a wonderful, wonderful woman called Vanessa Geyer, who uh, specialises in kind of uh, humanistic, person-centred counselling, but also does all, all sorts of other things. Absolutely, to me, she embodies exactly what I wanted from a therapist. Your needs, of course, may differ, but one of the things that's so, so important is to come away from your sessions feeling like you have really been heard listened to seen and she does a fantastic job at that uh is really good at kind of uh giving me a boost when i'm feeling low so that's a shout out to just my counselor if any of you have got uh therapists or counselors that you want to give a shout out to drop me a line and i'll include them in the show notes or something like that uh, that would be nice, wouldn't it, if we can build up a, a community of trusted therapist advisors, you know, that, that would be nice. People who you've actually experienced and have really genuinely helped you, whether they're psychiatrists, psychologists or whatever. Um, so there we go. Now, uh, I mention her because I see her regularly, every week, and she does an amazing job. And This particular week um, has been, well, I've had an extraordinary couple of weeks, really. It's been an interesting time, as the Chinese curse says, uh, in in all sorts of ways. And and one of the reasons I mention the work 
is that uh, you can do the work for months or years working on yourself and still, you know, you realise you're not invulnerable. Something can come along and trip you up and leave you floundering flat on your face. Just when you thought you were getting yourself sorted, you suddenly realise, hmm, there's more work to do. Have you had experiences like that? And it's not a matter of not learning from your experience. I'd like to think, goodness me, I've learnt from my experiences and addressed the stuff that I felt needed to be addressed and I'm continuing to do so. Uh, obviously, that's not good. If you do keep getting tripped up by the same thing over and over again, you need to think about that. Now, I'm talking about where something can kind of take you by surprise and I will um, I'm going to tell you a little story I'm not going to name any names but I was away at a an event uh, over the weekend um, uh, and I someone came up to me someone I know reasonably well I mean not a close friend but someone I certainly consider to be a good acquaintance um, and presented me with a gift which is, of course, lovely. It's wonderful. And I was completely floored uh, by the nature of the gift because it seemed to me a, 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 an extraordinary and really quite lavish gift. Um, and I have to admit, I was dumbstruck briefly. I overcame my... Uh, my my state of being dumbstruck uh, quickly enough to obviously thank the gentleman concerned and express my appreciation for this gift and it is indeed a, a beautiful gift and however it flagged something up in me my first reaction other than surprise at someone just walking up and presenting me with this magnificent gift was I don't deserve this right? I, goodness me, no, this is a gift that's kind of out of my league. Why on earth would, would someone present me with something like this that, to be frank, I couldn't possibly afford myself? Kind of out of my league. It's not like it was a little box of chocolates. It was something more substantial. It was a piece of military, actually. The kind of thing, and this chap had noticed that at some point in the past on a different podcast that I do, I'd kind of mentioned, oh, yeah, oh, I'd love to have one of those. Well, he listened, bless his heart. And he very nobly said, oh, well, I, I had one of these and I'm not using it anymore. You might as well have it. Very kind of uh, uh, dismissive of the level of generosity, let's say. But I recognised the level of generosity and was utterly gobsmacked. And what I realised had arisen in me was... Do you remember we were talking about self-compassion last time? That wonderful book by Kristin Neff, Self-Compassion, and how for years, many, 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 many years, decades, I had been fighting with what I called the devil on my shoulder that told me I was crap at everything, Right? Well, what floored me at the weekend was the realization that, yeah, I'd kind of, I've, I've managed, I've worked on, I've dismissed the devil that tells me I'm rubbish at everything, 
and that I, oh, I'm constantly making mistakes and I need to beat myself up. But it's like he had a sneaky cousin hiding around the corner that I hadn't really noticed. And that sneaky cousin is imposter syndrome under certain circumstances. Now, I know, uh, and, and interestingly, I'll, I'll flag it up, that, uh, a, a, sh- a forthcoming show very soon. I've invited someone onto the show who is an expert in imposter syndrome. And if she gets to listen to this, she might have something to say about this incident. But a lovely lady called Claire Yosa, who I've actually known through for different reasons for quite a few years. We were actually involved together in trying to battle EUVAT when it was being introduced mm, several years ago. Of course, Brexit has just torpedoed that whole notion, but <clears throat> never mind, she was heavily involved, and I met her through that. Um, imposter syndrome, yes, that feeling that, oh gosh, as soon as the spotlight's thrown on you, ooh, oh gosh, wow, uh, not sure I feel comfortable here and certainly don't deserve people's praise and adulation. I'm going to mention another good friend of mine, I'm not going to say too much, but a lovely friend who I know suffers from this a bit as well. So there's a lot of us out there and I've heard other people talk about it, which is like, it's only me, (laughs) right? Why is someone lavishing so much care, attention, praise and so forth on me. It's only me. I'm, I'm Henry. I'm Henry. I was brought up in Essex and I've lived in Brighton and Hove for a long time. And it's just me, you know, on my daily treadmill trying to earn a crust. And OK, I do a bit. And this is where it comes in. I have put my head above the parapet. Being self-employed, you get used to taking a deep breath and stepping into that minefield even though you know it's potentially dangerous you know a lot of people go oh no I wouldn't be self-employed you wouldn't catch me risking everything doing that so it's interesting that part of my personality is that I'm a risk taker hey I've started this podcast with no guarantees of anything right no guarantees that it will produce me a single bean of income obviously I'm hoping that it will Please tell your friends and everyone you know about the podcast and encourage them to listen so we can get the listener numbers up and I might get some advertising or sponsors. That would be fantastic. But the point is I've started this thing because I love it. And in the past, I've started a magazine, a hobby magazine that ended up being sold all around the world because I love doing it. And was I blinkered about the potential disastrous consequences or am I just stupid? Well, you know. It's one of those things, but I I fairly quickly normally overcome imposter syndrome when I'm embarking on something by simply plunging in, taking a deep breath and, yeah, you only live once, whatever, let's give it a go. What's the worst that could happen, right? So that side of things, imposter syndrome is not something I really suffer from. I kind of feel like, well, why shouldn't I have a go at this? I mean, one of the things when you're in business and, you know, people say, oh, you know, why do you want to start a business in in that field? There's loads of other things in that field already. Do you know what? My experience in business tells me that if there's loads of things of that kind already, it means it's popular. It means that there's a marketplace. It means that potentially you have an audience. It means potentially you have customers. You just need to 
find your own niche and address them in the right way. And with luck, if you're persistent and you've got a bit of guts and grit, you'll survive. So that end of things, getting started on stuff, taking the initiative on stuff, thinking, well, why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't it be me having a go, right? I'm fine with that. What clearly I throws me is when people come up to me and said, you did that really well. I'm really impressed with what you did. I admire what you've done. I admire what you're doing. And in fact... This chap said, because of stuff I've done in the past, I have inspired him. Wow, that... And not just inspired him, but and here's a token of his appreciation of my efforts in the form of this particular... You know, you're probably all shaking your heads going, wow, what kind of a weird life does this man lead where someone gives him a cavalry helmet well you know if i was in the in the jewelry field someone might have given me a bracelet or something like that or a ring or a necklace you know equate it with something that you would think wow that's extraordinary and in this particular niche field that's definitely a wow that's extraordinary moment so I realise that, yeah, I, I, I struggle with being given praise. How weird is that? Because I was brought up in an education system, a grammar school. I went to grammar school while they still existed up in Essex. Did quite well and was always pushed to do well. And I think that's when I it was impressed on me that you kind of... You need to be a people pleaser, Henry. You know, you need to keep people happy. You need to keep getting A's and A pluses for your schoolwork. You need to keep being in the first 15 for rugby. You need to keep being captain of athletics and, and representing the school at national championships. And then, as it was as well, the county at national championships as well. You know, I, I got up to a level of, uh, in my youth as a schoolboy, I got into the England schoolboy rugby squad. I was pushed to achieve constantly, push, push, push. And the reward was, there's a gold star in your exercise book. There's a pat on the back. There's some praise. There's, oh, yes, affirmation, validation. There's a word that will crop up in this show many times, I'm sure. So isn't that kind of weird that having had that, what is it? Is it that I don't believe that I'm worthy of this praise? You know, how weird is that, that I, I work really hard to get the praise and then I'm kind of a bit, when I actually get it. I suppose there's another thing of being self-employed as well, that as a graphic designer, a professional graphic designer, funnily enough, you don't always get any praise. The praise is the client paid the invoice, so therefore, ergo, they must have liked it. But there have been many occasions over the years where there's been, you're waiting for feedback, waiting for feedback, waiting for feedback, tumbleweed. It's a bit like that. Doing this podcast, ladies and gentlemen, where I'm trusting that because, bless your hearts, you're tuning in and listening, that you like it. But so far... There haven't been many comments on the website or on social media that would confirm that. And don't get me wrong, I'm I'm not bothered. That's the weird thing. It's like, 
I'm not bothered. It comes as such a surprise, actually, when someone does say, wow, listen to the podcast, Henry. That was fantastic. Really enjoyed that. You get so used to not getting any feedback. And so you look at the, the, the metrics, you look at the statistics that you get back from your podcast distributor and, oh, wow, well, an extra 50 people listened to it this week. OK, I'm assuming they must have liked it. And it looks like some of the same people who listened to the previous episode have come back to listen to this one. Oh, well, that's good. Right. But they haven't all come gushing onto the website or onto Twitter or Instagram or wherever and gone, wow, that's the world's greatest podcast. Now, part of that is, you know, I'm realistic. I'm still learning this. You know, I've done podcasting in a different sphere and the hobby sphere. Uh, but that's a very different ball game. This is my first attempt at trying to put together a really professionally structured uh, kind of podcast. I'm still learning, you know, and that's where your feedback could be useful. If, you, if you're like telling me, Henry, for goodness sake, just shut up, will you? <laughs> All right. I can listen to that. If, on the other hand, you said, oh, gosh, actually, that bit about that was really interesting. Could you tell us more? That would also be interesting. You know, oh, that w I really enjoyed that guest you had on the show. Could you invite them back sometime? That's really useful, not just for me, but for the guest as well. I think that's the other thing is that there's a chunk of this show, which isn't just me blathering away. There's a guest as well. So imposter syndrome. Wow. Yeah, that took me by surprise. Obviously, being given that gift took me by surprise enormously. And it was like, oh, oh, wow. I'm not often speechless, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not often speechless, that has to be said. But on that occasion, I found it hard to utter even a squeak for a couple of minutes. But, yes, the, 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 the realisation that, OK, I've got rid of that really gruesome devil that used to beat me up day after day after day after day constantly... I've got rid of that, but where? what's this other thing? What's this thing sneakily hiding around the corner that makes me feel like, wow, if people actually do express their admiration for what I've done or what I'm doing, it floors me. What can I do about that? So this is why I'm really looking forward to having Claire on the show to talk to us a bit about that. And if you've suffered from imposter syndrome yourself in whatever sphere, it could be in business, it could be, you know, if you're an actor, it could be that you're, you know, when you go on stage or if people ask you for your autograph or, you know, you're just doing an ordinary, an ordinary day to day job and people praise you for what you've done and you go, oh, gosh, no, I don't deserve that praise. It's, it's only me. Tell us about it. Leave us something in the comments on the web page or, you know, via Twitter or whatever. Uh, and if you've got any specific questions about imposter syndrome that you'd like me to raise with Claire when I speak to her. Uh, I think I'm interviewing her in um, early September, beginning of September. Let me know and I'll try and include your particular point of concern. Um. Obviously, what helped me get over this incident, because I felt pretty peculiar, was I gave myself vast dollops of self-compassion. Was, you know, literally, I'm sitting there with my hand on my heart, comforting myself. There, there, Henry, come on. You, you, it's all right. Uh, you don't need to be frightened of this. It's good to be honest about how you feel, but don't let it overwhelm you. 
this is a common experience, you'll be fine, right? That's given me a lot of soothing. Uh, so I would reiterate, if you've never read Kristin Neff's book on self-compassion, give it a read. All right? So I'm going to shut up now. I hope you found that interesting. Um, I hope you haven't found it too embarrassing, but I've decided from the get-go on the show, I'm just going to bear all. There you go. You get raw Henry. <laughs> so I'm going to put a plaster on the raw bit now and say in a moment, you're going to listen to the main interview between myself and the fantastic Dan Holloway. Enjoy the rest of the show. Inside Your Head, episode four. And today I'm joined by Dan Holloway, who's a quite extraordinary chap. And I'm absolutely delighted that he's come on the show. Obviously, you would have heard me do a bit of introduction about him in the introduction to the overall show. Uh, he's a great guy. I, I, we'll, we'll come clean. We know each other. Uh, kind of uh, a good acquaintanceship via an organisation that we both belong to, the Alliance of Independent Authors, which if we have time, because I'm realising on these shows an hour isn't very long at all, we, we might get to mention towards the end of the show because we both have an involvement with that organisation, uh, which is how we first met. And we were just reminiscing about when was the last time we saw each other? And it was probably London Book Fair two or three years ago. Uh, that's how the world's been for the last couple of years and people who would normally get together in large numbers for events like that haven't been able to do so. But in any case, Dan's on here to talk about some really fascinating stuff. Uh, and hes uh, I'll put links to his website and books and so forth uh, in the show notes so that you can go and visit his extraordinary blog and read his amazing books because he's quite a guy. Uh, and Today, uh, we're going to be focusing primarily on stuff to do with the brain, uh, though Dan has his own lived experience, which we are also going to talk about. And I thank him very much for being prepared to do that. So, hello, Dan, and welcome to the show, first of all. Hello. I, it's interesting. I always We met through the Alliance of Independent Authors, but I always think of you as, as my fellow discus thrower rather than... <laughs> <laughs> fellow author because there are fewer of those <laughs> fantastic yes uh gosh that's that's taking me back yes well, likewise I'll, yes i'll confess <laughs> to the to the listeners that as a as a schoolboy and youth i was a i was a pretty good discus thrower actually that's a but that's a long long time ago but lovely memories now dan i've kind of uh pumped you up in the intro there but please do uh, introduce yourself tell the people a bit about your background where you're from and a little bit about your early life and education um that's really hard it's because i'm as you know I, i'm getting on so there's been a lot of it um <laughs> so i guess the thing that's most useful for people to know because it explains a lot is i i grew up in stroud in the cotswolds which is yeah. um 
famous for many things, um, all of which sort of make sense of me. One of which is it's it's centered to the UK's largest folk festival. It was home to the um, the UK's first big health food shop. It was um, home to, in fact, I sat next to the son of the person who introduced slam poetry to the UK, although I didn't know until 20 years afterwards um, (laughs) that he was. He was always Jess Jess Marcus. but it turns out he's the guy who introduced slam poetry to the UK, and I sort of met him in that context again 20 years later. Um, yeah. We're also the first town in the UK to introduce um, a non-cash-based um, or, or specifically barter-based economy. Um, oh, wow. And we have just, or Str- oh, no longer we, I'm now in Oxford, but Stroud has just voted to become um, the first town in the UK to implement a universal basic income. So it's wow. really, it's a really progressive, arty um, town. It's also full of hills. So I grew up on hills, which explains my love of trail running now. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that that's sort of me. And then I came to Oxford as a student um, right. in 1989 and never left. Now, uh, this is interesting because you've got a long association with Oxford obviously yeah uh and uh your blog posts are very open and honest and it's clear that uh, you were a really bright kid uh but you weren't necessarily as focused as you needed to be you actually had an ambition i believe to have a kind of academic career and be you know like a you you like the idea of being kind of a prominent academic spreading the word of education as it were but it turned out that you were held back by what was diagnosed only much later it turned out as bipolar disorder uh, and there's a wonderful quote Uh, on your blog, you say, whatever I would achieve, I'd become intellectually invisible. So tell us something about that journey, Dan, if you would, because that's really fascinating. And your commentary, which is a kind of a theme that we'll keep coming back to, about the way that uh, the world of academia can be rather closed towards people who are neurodivergent or disabled. Yeah, so so yes, it turned out turned out I was bipolar. I'm also ADHD and dyspraxic, which again came twenty years after find, finding that out. Came twenty years after finding out I was bipolar. So that and that explains mm. a whole bunch of other stuff. Mm. Um, so yeah, I basically had a I had a breakdown in two thousand, so four years into my doctorate, mm. um, and. Um, I'm on the advisory board of the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute, and I've spent right. the last decade and a bit um, campaigning on mental health and debt. Um, and right. there's obviously a reason that I campaign on mental health and debt. Um, mm. There is there are all sorts of figures which are really quite scary, which show the the interrelation that if you're if you have poor mental health, you're more likely to be in debt. If you're more likely to be in debt, you're more likely to have poor mental health, and yeah. it, it becomes a spiral. Um, mm. And the thing about that is it means that if, if you once you drop out of something, it becomes very hard to get back for very practical reasons, like mm. people who tend to go back to study later in life tend to be ones who have the financial freedom to do so. Yeah. Um, if you end up with debt as a result of poor mental health, you can't go back to study because mm. you can't take the time off. If I am, I'm very lucky that I have a job, 
Mm. Um, it's a very poor paying job in comparison to what I would be able to do if I wasn't ill. Mm. Um, but it is a job, but I can't take time off it to complete mm. study because that that ain't gonna yeah. that ain't gonna keep a roof over our head. No, <laughs> um, absolutely. So so yeah, that's that's what happened there. And I ended up I then came back to university as an administrator. Mm. And it's been very, very interesting seeing both sides of that yeah. of that coin. I could say I could say a lot, but I need to tag things with it with opinions on my own and not those of my employer. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And and any comments I make will be about higher education in general. Because, not Oxford in particular. Uh, read your own inferences. <clears throat> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I completely, not just sympathise, but empathise with your situation because um, though I'm not bipolar, I have had a breakdown in recent months and I also know as a self-employed person when, you know, and I had cancer, which kind of kicked my business in the nuts for a couple of years, plus COVID. Hey, we've all lived through COVID and I got no government support. And yes, I completely understand how uh, the inability to work, the running up of debts can severely affect your mental health. And I know that it's that's been one of the contributory factors that I've been battling against. And funny enough, you know, the, nowadays, I mean, I was lucky. I originally got my bachelor's degree back in, you know, 19, oh goodness me, 1793, <laughs> that's how old I am, folks. Back in the days when it was possible to get a full grant to go to university. And as a council house kid, had that not been available, I would not have a degree. It's as simple as that. And I look now at the expenses and the debts run up by kids who go to university. And wow, it's quite extraordinary. I was looking at, because I've become so in, interested in psychology and stuff, I thought, oh, should I do an open university degree yeah. in psychology, right? Uh, why not? You know, I know you can take it over years and years if necessary, do modules. And then I, I went and looked at the sums and the amounts that I would require. It's like, hmm, perhaps that'll have to wait. I could, yeah, I could talk about that for a while because that's something that has changed much more recently is the open university yeah. being made to function like a... In the, in the free market, as it were, rather than being a subsidised university. Yeah. So all the opportunities it presented when it was introduced in the 70s have, have gone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Massive. That's shame. kind of sending a slightly off topic into yeah. what is clearly deeply political area. But I think it's fair to say that uh, I certainly count myself as extremely lucky that I got my education when I did. Yeah. Dan, I think there's something important we've kind of almost skipped over here. And I think it's really important that because uh, I think you can you can help the listeners understand something that we hear, cool. you know, the words depression and bipolar kind of banded about without really understanding what they are. And obviously, uh, to be someone who is bipolar is something that affects and has affected your entire life. Yep. Would you be able to give some kind of brief summary of what that experience is actually like, Dan. What explain what by being bipolar kind of is. So, so by, in my case, bipolar is in general people. It's made up of two parts. There, there is the depressive mm. part, and there is what people call the manic part. And yeah. um, in general, depressive cycles tend to be more frequent or, or more prolific and last longer over a life cycle. Mm. Um, the, the highs tend to be slightly less frequent and 
sort of crunched into the middle sort of 20 to 40s. Um, right. And so what that's like, for me, the, the highs are the really damaging bits of, of right. my bipolar. And to describe what it's like, I guess it feels like the world... The world needs to needs to catch up with you. The world feels like it's going slowly, and you just want to crank it into gear. Um, right. You tend not to need any sleep, or you think you don't need any sleep. This is one of the dangerous things. Um, yeah, you think you don't need any sleep, and th this is why cycles tend to last for three three months ish in my case. Wow. Um, three months of getting by with two to three hours of sleep a night, if that. Thinking you're absolutely fine, that's perfectly normal, which of course isn't. Um, and that's why you crash massively afterwards. Um, mm -hmm. Slightly grandiose thinking. So you think you're capable of doing a lot more. You think every as everyone is really slow. Why won't they just hurry up? Why can't they <laughs> why can't they think and do things? Why can't they read 10 books a day? Why can't they have five conversations at once? Um yeah. you set yourself really, really grandiose goals um that you mm -hmm. then can't reach. Um and then all of that builds and builds and builds to a pattern where you then crash. Um, yeah. It's also associated with binge spending, and that's one of the things that can, yeah. can lead to problems with, with yeah. debt. Um, so, yes, mania is associated with binge spending. Depression is often associated with comfort spending. So it's, it's a really great... Mm -hmm. It's a really great cycle. Like that. <laughs> God, yeah, 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 absolutely. I can remember seeing a couple of years ago now, uh, Stephen Fry, you know, the, the comedian, uh, talking because he's bipolar and he did a documentary, very bravely did a whole documentary about his condition. And I remember him uh, revealing that in when he's up and he's, you know, manic, he spends vast sums on Apple Mac computers yeah. and gadgets and that kind of stuff. Uh, and he buys multiple things, the same thing, multiple mm -hmm. times. Um, and and that's something that was so revealing. I never realized that that was an aspect of being bipolar. In, in my case, it was Bibles because I was a theology student. Really? Um, so I ended up with 23 Bibles because I was convinced that I just needed I just needed a better one and a new it's like new notebook syndrome you just yeah, need a yeah. better one and a new one and that way you will be everything will be all right yeah and, and then of course it's not so you need another one and it, so yeah i ended up with, with 23 bibles which is yeah Wow. Uh, I, I kind of wish you hadn't mentioned the new notebook syndrome because I suffer a little bit from that I have a pile of moleskins uh and you know yeah. But that's my little confession. I'll talk yeah. about some other time, right? Uh, and I know that we we have a mutual friend, Joanna Penn, the creative pen, who's also a member of the Alliance of Independent Authors, who's also got a love affair with Moleskine yeah. notebooks. So yeah. <laughs> it, it kind of runs in the organisation. There's something going on there. Now, Dan, that that's really really interesting. Of course, the the other thing is, of course, um, which would be good to talk about is as someone who you know you suffer from bipolar disorder. What if any treatment? is available uh, and uh, in, in kind of neurological terms can you explain a bit about kind of what's going on in the brain you know for someone who's suffering from bipolar disorder not in an expert way uh it in basically it, in, it interferes with your brains well it, the, the depression is as Chemical depression is is an interference with your brain's ability to uptake serotonin, so yeah. or to utilise the ser its own the serotonin mm -hmm. the body produces. So, um, the most common form of 
uh, of treatment is, is SSRIs, which is selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which basically right. stops the body reabsorbing all the chemicals that are meant to make you not feel miserable all the time yeah, um, yeah. so that it can actually do its job. Um, mm. And I, bipolar, a lot of it is about mood stabilization. Mm. So that, that tends to be the case. Um, again, the bipolar tends to be, it tends to be a much shorter term thing because you're trying to flatten out the up rather, yeah. than, rather than necessarily. Depression tends to last a lot longer. Um, Mm. And and you you're sort of in, enabling the body to do its own work, right? Where, where okay. it's, it's it's a different kind of intervention, I guess, with with the the ups where you're you're stopping the body doing bad things to itself. Whereas yeah. with with depression, the the meds are there to to enable the body to do good things to itself. That's probably oh, you'll get all sorts of comments from people saying that's wrong if I say anything more because I'm not a medic. I'm a, the, I'm a, theologian, I'm a theologian and philosopher. But, Absolutely. But as you know, that we become our own experts in our own conditions. Yeah. yeah, I think the whole this is the whole point that I, I want to be able to do on this show is to let people talk about their own lived experience. Yeah. And I think people understand, you know, you're not a doctor. I'm not a doctor. You know, you're not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychiatrist. But it's really interesting hearing from the person who's in the middle of that situation, you know, what your actual experience is. Now, but I think the important thing is I want to talk about this because I think uh, it would be very easy to think that your life, therefore, has been nothing but grim. But in fact, Dan, you've made some extraordinary achievements. In spite of being bipolar, you've had an incredible life. You've done some incredible things. I mean, not only, you know, do you do a lot of work, for example, on behalf of the Alliance of Independent Authors, but you've set up your own business kind of right alongside academia, which is wonderfully cheeky, I think. Uh, um, and I think you've kind of carved yourself what I can only describe as a, as a unique career. Uh, and you said, you, you, you write on your blog, um, a month after I was at my lowest, still unable to open my mail or answer the phone, I competed in and won the World Intelligence Championships. Now, first of all, I think like many <laughs> listeners, it's like, I didn't even know there was a World Intelligence Championship. There, there, there isn't any more, sadly. All right. <laughs> let, let alone something that, that could be won. Uh, and I think that you know, it, it would be really helpful if you could tell people about that time in your life and, and what the World Intelligence Championships was, past tense, and some of the other stuff that, in spite of being bipolar, the stuff you've managed to achieve through your own efforts. I Okay, so the World... It's part of the the Mind Sports Olympiad is an event that's that's held every year. Um, it's a global event bringing together together people to compete in all sorts of mental sports. Um, started in 1997 and I competed in the very first one and I've been going back. I had a little gap in the 2000s and I started going back in 2016. So in 2000, mm. I won the World Intelligence Championships, which... It's basically those things you see in in for American listeners the the GRE. So it's right. things like it's it's pattern spotting, sequential tasks, matrices, Raven. What, what's it called? Raven's matrices or matrices? There's a word in the middle. Raven's 
advanced progressive matrices or whatever. So it's wow. It's where it says this is to this, x is to y, as z is to what, and you have to work yeah. out that and, and the relation between them. Right. And those ones where you you know you have like the grids nine by nine, three by three grids, and there's yeah. a dot and it moves around, and you have to work out where it's going to appear next. So it's it's right. that kind of. It's a very controversial subject. It's part of part of my problem. And this is why it looks like on my CV, like I've got really helpful things, but none of them sort of anything that you can get paid for. Um, <laughs> so it doesn't actually help me. So yeah. I've, I've won I've won the World Intelligence Championship. I've won the World Creative Thinking Championship three times, and even wow. though creativity is meant to be the most sought after skill there is, that doesn't seem to mean that anyone particularly wants wants to know much about it um, and speed reading. So I, I've been the European speed reading champion for, for three years in a row. Wow. So that, and there, there's a documentary out there that's really, really embarrassing um, of filmed by Quartz magazine. So they, oh, followed, right. they followed me around um, and they followed me around Oxford and then they came to London and followed me in the championship. Oh, wow. um, and then they went to Germany and there's, you'll find it really interesting. There's all sorts of the, the, the neuroscience of speed reading. Um, Wow. look into so so yeah those are the main things and then the other well obviously i threw discus so one of the one yeah. of the real problems and this is something that i'm sure you will have found um one of the problems with being bright early on so i was in one of these awful mm. gifted children programs i didn't know what i was what was oh, happening right. but we had a psychologist came to school when i was eight and did some tests with me and they said oh blah, 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 i'll send you up a couple of years so that's why i ended up at oxford early um, and I had no idea that this is the case, but, but the problem with being identified as bright is it's assumed you're not going to do anything physical. Yeah. Um, add to that the fact that schools focus on team sports and in team sports, you just get bullied if you're bright. Yeah. Um, and I spent the first 30 years of my life thinking I hated anything physical. Mm. Um, then I became a graduate, realized I actually, actually, there's a gym in the basement of my graduate accommodation. It's a 24 hour gym. So I started by going down there at three in the morning, um, ended up on the university athletics team throwing discus and hammer. Um, wow. And then, yeah, discovered that actually I really, really like sport and really like physical exercise. Yeah. So now I'm a trail runner and a power lifter. Um, yeah. wow. And so, yeah, that there's the physical side of things. What else have I done? A bridge. I was one of my, I don't know if I've told you the story. I probably have. Um, I have the the distinction of having been thrown out of the Great Britain under twenty five bridge team for bringing the game into disrepute. <laughs> no, I've never heard that. Dad. That was so. That was in the in the the nineteen nineteen ninety, I think it was, and that followed an incident on a ferry on the way back from a competition in France. Oh my goodness! Um, with me and apparently a lot of Liverpool football fans. Oh <laughs> so, no! So yes, so I was an international bridge player. Um, and, wow. Yeah. And brought the game into disrepute. Brought the game into disrepute on what, what turned out to be the first of my manic episodes when it came oh in. Basically, I had a very public breakdown on a, on a ferry um, that I had oh no recollection goodness. of. Um, wow. Yeah. How extraordinary. How extraordinary. But, you know, amongst, amongst those kind of achievements, I'm, I'm actually fascinated by the kind of the, the World Intelligence Championships because uh, for my sins, um, 
I think technically I probably still am a member of Mensa. You're a uh, Mensa, yes. No, I know. Oh God, I've been there. And yes, I can I can remember taking. Oh, uh, this was a long time ago. This is about twenty odd years ago. I decided, oh, Mensa, and the, another friend of mine is extremely bright. He said, oh, yeah, he's a member of Mensa, and he said, oh, you should have a go. You're a bright chap, man. You should have a go. And I remember going along to this, you know, day at this. I think it was a school yeah, or somewhere that they'd taken <laughs> over and uh, sat there, did all these extraordinary tests and came away and got told, oh, yes, you're, yeah, yeah, I can't remember what my score was, 149 or something like that, 150. And, oh, yes, there's a member of Mensa now. And it's like, well, now what do I do with it? Yeah, exactly. And so your description, your description of, yes, you've, you've got all these distinctions, but what do you do with them, yeah. you know? And that is one of those things. And of course, that's the difference between where if you actually manage to get into academia and get your PhD and the you know, doctorate and become a, a, a assistant professor, professor and so on. There's a career there, isn't there? Yeah. But just being a member of Mensa and, and, you know, unless you happen to be a chum of the late uh, Lord Sinclair's, there's not much you can do with it. Yeah. But the thing is, Dan, what's uh, really kind of um, fired me up for this show is... Amongst all the other things that you're really good at, mate, is you are an extraordinarily creative person. Creativity and you do a you yeah. do a huge amount of work. And in fact, you've got a business around the subject of creativity. And, and I just want to kind of introduce that subject because I think it's probably one of the least understood most misused terms in the english language you know where people say have said to me over the years oh henry you're so creative but what they mean it by that is you know you can paint you can draw you can play musical instruments you can you know i'm a i am a professional graphic designer so yeah. of course i i have to be creative for a living i i create podcasts i do stuff online though so i i am Yes, I am a creative person, but I think that what people often miss uh, when it comes to being a creative person is the work that goes into being creative. Uh, and there is that old saying, isn't there, that it's 10,000 hours, right? Something like that. 10,000 times. You do something 10,000 times and it, you make it look blooming easy. But actually, what people then say, oh, he's so creative. Yeah, it's taken me a long time to get to this point. There's work involved. Now, Dan, uh, yeah. you you talk about creativity, though, uh, with people who are not just individuals. You also talk to businesses and corporations and institutions about yeah. creativity, which is where I go, wow, that's big creativity. So I'm going to shut up now, Dan, and say, please tell us about the work you do around creativity and what it means to you okay so I, I as you probably know if you've had this conversation we need to be careful being in the alliance of independent authors on this because yeah. our, our founder um Orna ross who is absolutely amazing is also a creativity expert and, and she and i have quite different ideas about what creativity sure, is absolutely um, yeah so creativity for me for me it's very simple it's just new stuff that's all it right. is um, being creative simply means being something new. And it goes back, we could have discussions about Greek. I'm trying not to have discussions about Greek. But in Greek, there's, there's, there's a big distinction between what they call poiesis and mimesis, copying and making. Right. Um, and creativity is just making. It's doing something that hasn't been done before. And that right. can be 
what we think of as creativity. So writing, coming up with yeah. a painting, um, a podcast, a piece of music, um, or it could just be any any idea that hasn't been thought before. Mm-hmm. Um, not in the sense of you never stand in the same river twice. Um, mm-hmm. So, which is also true. Um, so, me deciding to to have muesli and a banana for breakfast this morning yeah. is different from me having muesli and banana for breakfast yesterday because I'm a different person and blah 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 blah. blah. So, that, yeah. so everything's new. Yeah, but that's that's not yeah. what we mean. We mean. Um, something significant and new is is what creativity is. And the context I try and get institutions to think of it and the value of creativity for me is that a lot of the world's problems are caused by systems and actions that have got us there. So the human-made yeah. problems, they're institution-made problems. Um, mm. So poverty, scarcity, climate change, mm. um, all the things we think of as as big problems, the rise of, the rise of nano weapons, um, mm. dangers from artificial intelligence, and that they're all things that we have got ourselves into by human beings mm. doing things in the same way. We recognise their problems, we want to solve them, but the way of solving them isn't going to be by using the same ways of thinking and the same ways of acting that created them. Yeah. Um, so creativity in that context is simply finding ways of approaching big problems that come from outside the systems that created those problems. Mm. So that's where it's doing new stuff. Um, so yeah. it's, it's getting, and I think we're going to, I, I won't say anything more there because I think we're going to talk about the neuroscience of it, but mm. two, two precursors to that conversation. The first is to say that for me, there are two big elements to creativity. The first is knowing lots of things about lots of things. So having raw yeah. material, yeah. um, because the more you know, the more you've, the, everything you know is a tool. Um, yeah. And the second thing is, is being able to link those things up. So when we look at the neuroscience of creativity, we'll see that half of it's about memory and half of it's about connectivity, mm. as I understand it. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is to, that we've misunderstood by and large in, for the last four or 500 years, we've been misunderstanding memory. We think of memory very much as what in computer terms we think of as ROM. So it's yeah. memory for recall. Um, whereas to be creatively useful, memory needs to be memory for use. So we, if yeah. we're going to learn something, we need to learn something so that we can then use that thing for something useful, not so we can yeah. tell people about it down the pub. Um, yeah. So it's memory as RAM, not ROM. And, yeah. and thinking about your knowledge, if you think you can think of knowledge as the sum of everything you know, and I think a lot of people do that. I know this plus this plus this plus this. So if I know 10 mm. things the, and I learn one more thing, I'll have increased my knowledge by 10%. Mm. Um, so every time you learn something new, you're disincentivizing yourself from learning anymore because you get diminishing returns because the mm. incremental increase in your knowledge and learning new stuff goes down. Mm. Whereas I, if you think of knowledge instead as the connections between things, it's a multiplicative effect yeah. so your knowledge is the product of everything you know it's everything you know multiplied together and that mm. means if i know 10 things learning a new thing will multiply that by 11 as it were and every yeah. new thing you learn actually incentivizes you to learn more new things because the more you know the more rapidly the potential of that ramps up so you get into this whole virtuous cycle just by reframing how you think about memory and knowledge um yeah so that's my precursors to talking about creativity Know lots of things about lots of things and be able to link them up. Um, and knowing lots of things about lots of things 
isn't just about having an encyclopedic memory. It's about having having the kind of memory that's set up so each of those things is almost like a neuron. It's it's got these what I would call hooks hanging out from it. And I teach. Yeah. One of the things yeah. I teach people is how to turn ideas into Velcro. Right. So I don't know if we will have time to talk about that, but it that yeah. Go, well, go ahead, go ahead and talk about it, Dan. Okay. Go ahead because it's fascinating. I I find it fascinating stuff because also there's something else in amongst it. Uh, uh, on your blog, you said in one of your pieces that uh, in a sense it's not just about the tools; it's about uh, creating an instruction manual. Yeah in a sense uh, and because uh, i'm finding this interesting because i know that uh so much of my job let's just say my job as a graphic designer uh compared to someone who has just discovered photoshop and thinks they can design their own <laughs> book jacket right it's like wow all these things i can do right the the skill of being a professional graphic designer is first of all your experience has shown you what actually works and also your knowledge means that you know instantly out of all that vast catalogue of things you could do actually yeah. this is the thing i should do one of the things i notice most often for example when it comes to choice of typefaces fonts you know there's a, there must be a million of them out there and i've got hundreds of thousands on my computer but it's just that it what becomes this instinctive knowledge of it's that kind of job so i'm my choices yeah. actually are not a hundred thousand fonts it's those two or three i think will work and i'll go and play with those yeah. <laughs> and it relates to something else dan we you and i are both discus throwers right you and i are both weightlifters and i'm also a martial mm -hmm. artist and it is that difference between you know someone who's a beginner and how they're overwhelmed by the the myriad of possibilities and all the all the technique oh i'm worried about the technique for this that and that and then that difference as i'm sure you've had that experience but as a discus throw it's a beautiful thing actually that moment where you're in the circle and it go it, it just is over in a nanosecond and it just flies out of your hand yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely perfectly and there's just a kind of sense where everything has come together in the right way at the right moment and produced that effect yeah. Yeah. which i would say is kind of related to the creativity we're talking about yes it, it well well it, it absolutely is and, and on that i'm sure you know but for you for your links um books like the talent code by dan coyle and uh peak by erickson and paul i think mm. so books about about deep practice um, yeah. and research into that mm. but so so to go to, it, this my interest in creativity sort of started with theology and this right. is where we will get the mix of neuroscience and medieval history so <laughs> um you will be familiar i'm sure and a lot of your readers will be familiar with techniques memory techniques like mind palaces yeah. um, they were made repopularized by things like hannibal and sherlock um and in the Middle Ages, people used these very visual, very elaborate, very, what we think of as creative ways to memorize things. And then mm. in the, the late 1500s, 1600s, there was, it was a theological movement um, surrounding Puritanism that became very suspicious of the use of images. Um, and one of the consequences of this was that memory techniques involving images essentially became things you couldn't do because you were 
for all sorts of reasons, you're, you'd be accused of sorcery if you did them. Um, wow. So and everything in Puritanism became much more verbal. Right. became much more about words, and in particular, the way information was organized became about lists of words. Um, mm. And lists of words are much less effective at helping us really build the creative connections in our brain than mm. images um, and sensory input is. Um, and this influence, you can see it um, in computers, you can see it in the, in the breadcrumb trail in Amazon. When you look, if you look at your books yeah. categories, for example, you start at the biggest and then you go narrow down, narrow down until you get sort of um, paranormal shape-shifting romance or whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, so you go down from the start at the biggest and you end up at the smallest and, and things are categorized. Yeah. They're put at the end of branches yeah. rather than being based on images and being very much more floating, which they were. Yeah. And so what's happened with with a lot of the, the rediscovery of competitive memory, for example, and competitive mm. mind sports is rediscovering these ancient techniques and that mm. actually there is a science behind them, um, that, right. that, that they do work, they actually change the structure of the brain. Wow. Um, Tell us something about that, because that sounds fascinating. It then. is. So the, the first study that was done on this, and this is something that, that most people are familiar with, it was a study on black cab drivers. Um, oh, right. And it features in a lot of books. It's a very famous study that shows people who do the knowledge, which I'm sure yeah. is, is, because, is getting phased out in the days of Uber. But the knowledge is basically to be a, a licensed black cab driver, you have to be able to find your way around London, the shortest place, point between two routes. Um, so you had to be able to make mental maps of your route. And fMRI studies found that the, you actually change the composition of your brain. So, so the, the bits in, I'm going to get it wrong. The, it's the anterior, anterior cingulate, I think, is the really crucial bit. Right. It's, it's, there, there are also there are bits in the middle in the associative cortexes of the brain, the, the, yeah. the, the gray matter in the middle that grow when yeah. you've done six months of training on the knowledge. Sure. And this is to do with neuroplasticity. It's, it is, yeah. And, and what you're doing, and they did all sorts of control experiments. So it's not the act of driving that does it. It's not the yeah. act of, of using a map that does it. It's because they, they tested as a control experiment. They use bus drivers. And bus right. drivers have a programmed route. So they, they drive the same route, but they're yeah. not having to use their brains to navigate in the same way. Absolutely, and yeah. their brains didn't change, no matter how long, yeah. how long they drove the bus for, whereas cabbies did. Yeah. Um, and the really interesting study that was done recently by... Um, a guy called Boris Conrad in the Netherlands, who is also a memory athlete. Um, oh, really? He took people and he used these memory palace techniques and he used them over a six month period and shows that it changes the brain in the same way as these cabbies. Wow. Um, wow. And that all ties up with a lot of work done by um, someone called Nancy Andreessen in the States, who is the world's leading, right. leading researcher on creative brains. She basically did. She did studies of people, who's the people we think are creative. She got them all to sit in an FMRI, right. fMRI scanner and she found the thing that differentiated them all in the scanner was the same part of the brain, the, the cabbies right. and memory athletes. So, so oh, that's wow. why I say one of the two key aspects, this knowing lots of things about lots of things, but in a very particular way, yeah. in, a, in a way that you can then use it, um, yeah. is part, part of the thing that has been found to be a key element in creativity within the brain. Yeah. 
Uh, this this has reminded me of a quite a famous phrase that I've seen used in all kinds of different contexts, to, not just to do with kind of uh, memory athletics or whatever, but also to do with overcoming emotional distress and so on and so forth. There's a famous phrase, uh, neurons that fire together, wire together. That's a phrase you must have heard a million times. Uh, but it's for those of you who haven't, the, it's the idea being that if you practice doing something a sufficient number of times, the, the neurons that are involved in that process become kind of an automatic route, a shortcut through the brain, as it were, so that it, this process, and like we were talking about, you know, the martial arts, you know, something that you practice over and over and over again, eventually becomes kind of automatic. And that applies not just to sports and that kind of stuff. It, it applies to our behavior in general, so that, for example, if you find yourself uh, getting very anxious about something on a regular basis, you can practice uh, calming that anxiety through, you know, mindfulness and all sorts of other techniques, so that in fact you. Uh, the original route that would have been taken by that emotional process gets changed. It's if you imagine here's an example. You know the the points on a railway. So the, normally the train will go straight down that track from that uh, starting point to that destination. But if you can train your brain to switch the points halfway down, then effectively you can veer off to a different destination. It just takes time and practice. So uh, that's one of the extraordinary things where uh, psychology and neuroscience and intelligence and creativity all kind of overlap, don't they, Dan? Yeah, I, I would really recommend the Dan Coyle book that I was mentioning for your listeners on this. Um, he talks a lot about myelination, um, right. which is the process by which, if you think of, brain, of, of neurons as the wire, um, yeah. myelin is the... It's the plastic that wraps the wire. Right. So if, if we think about the pathway between neurons being neurons connect and they you get electrical pulses fire down this pathway, um, yeah. the more you practice things, it, it wrap, literally wraps myelin around it. So it means that that right. signal gets through better. So yeah. it's literally, it's less of it gets lost. So if yeah. you think of it, it's like, it's like a cable that goes all the way under the Atlantic. The, nothing gets lost, nothing gets leaked. Um, but yeah. the signal goes really sharp and clear um, yeah. because it's protected by that and practice builds up that that coating of the, the neuronal yeah. connections. So yeah. the, yeah. the other thing that it sounds like would be really interesting is a guy called Moran Surf, if you've heard of. I haven't, no. Really, really interesting chap who has um, been everything from a black hat, black hat, I think he was a black hat hacker, um, <laughs> is now a professor of neuroscience. Oh, right. um, and a lot of the studies he's he's done have shown that the uh, coming back to what you said about changing pathways, yeah. Um, when you make a decision, a lot of the decisions you make, the neural event in the brain precedes your conscious awareness of the decision by by a measurable amount. Yeah. So he says the the key is the key to changing how you make decisions is to catch it before the neural event rather than at the moment of decision. Right. Um, so he does a lot with athletes, for example. Right. I want, I need to stop running faster because I can't take this anymore. By the time you've reached that, the decision's been made. So so finding triggers to, to find the point before 
the neural event rather than the point before you become conscious of it, and then reprogram it so that that trigger doesn't get tripped. This is fantastic. It's reminded me of <clears throat> uh, the book How Emotions Are Made by Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's talking about uh, actually how emotions are constructed they're kind of a social construct rather than something that's inherent within us but that's for another show another <laughs> time we're getting off topic here because dan uh what i think is really fascinating here is uh i think a lot of people when they think about being creative there's that the old story about well it depends whether it's left brain or right brain dominated right actually recent research has shown that that's not really true is it you know and that creativity uh is a is a much more complex thing so how do you what's your understanding of what's going on when uh you're searching out and trying to improve enhance uh or even enable someone to be creative, Dan? Okay, so, How do you set about that? So, so though we, I think we've touched on the first, which is connected to this idea of learning lots about lots of things. And that's to yeah, do yeah. with this these central, these associative cortexes of the brain, making that as strong as possible by using smart learning techniques, like, yeah. like using memory palaces and so on. Yeah. Um, the second bit is the joining things up. And yeah. there are some fascinating studies... Um, a guy called Charles Lim is the person that, that people want to look up. Um, and he focused his studies on, on jazz, um, on, oh, really? on improvisation, because he wanted to find out what happened when people get into a state of flow, basically. And, and, and you'll have read a lot about flow. It's, it's one of those really popular things. Uh, so flow and improvisation in that state where things just come naturally and it all clicks. Yeah. Um, and... So what he did, he used keyboard players for um, the keyboard players and battle rappers are actually the two have been experimented on for the very wow. obvious reason that um, you can't stick a trombone player in an fMRI scanner without there being all sorts of problems. <laughs> um, so, so, so it has to be something where you can stick the head in the machine with the hands yeah. coming out to play the keyboard. Oh, um, and what he found is that when people start improvising, and it's the same with rappers when they start freestyling, um, is that literally the frontal parts of the brain, the sort of the the, the bits that we think of in, in, in Kahneman's really famous thinking fast, thinking slow, it's the thinking slow bits, the critical bits, the bits that allegedly make us more human and make us mm. more rational, um, mm. they all switched off. Almost instantaneously, that part of the brain went blank and all mm. the activity got focused on the motor cortexes, the really the old bit of the brain that just just on the movement so it all literally yeah. became unconscious. Um, wow. So the key to how I try and develop creativity is everyone, if you've got all this knowledge, what's stopping you from linking it up and coming up with ideas? Yeah. And most of the time, what's stopping you from coming up with ideas is the same reason that even a lot of very practiced keyboard players often can't improvise, is, is this, this bit of the brain getting in the way. So how do you stop it's not teaching you to do something. And this comes back to what we were saying about bipolar and depression. It's, it's, mm. it's letting your body do what it's capable of doing by, by taking away the thing that's stopping it. Mm. Um, so that's why I, it sounds very basic, but, but why I use gamification. So I, I basically just use, use our dopamine system to mm. give people a reward for being outrageous. 
So I, right. the, the, the games I use reward people who come up with ideas that no one else has come up with. So mm. um, the, the game I have, it's called Mycelium. Um, it sets people prob problems such as what would happen if, say, ants and a glacier swapped places for a day. <laughs> and you get five minutes to come up with as many answers as you can, and you do it in a group. And the more people who come up with the same answer, the fewer points that answer scores. Um, so it literally incentivizes your brain to think of things that are no one else has thought of by giving it a little mm. flash, giving it a little yeah. dopamine hit for doing so. And the idea with that is that it you're using the dopamine system to train the brain to shut the frontal cortex down. So that's that's how I put the second part of the puzzle in place. So 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 neuroscience wow. really does control both of the elements of creativity. Wow. Um, the thing is, uh, as well, you talk about creativity in different contexts as well. Uh, kind of the, one of the key tenets, you know, you, you've given some talks to big organizations, Dan, uh, really impressive. Um, and you talk about the need for new ideas to deal with the crises that the planet's facing. We need new ways of communicating those ideas in order to make sure that they really happen. And of course, uh, we need new institutions of one kind or another to who are basically willing to take on those new ideas yeah. and enact them. Right. Yeah. And uh, one of the things, I mean, this obviously is a big subject and you've written many tens of thousands of words about this kind of stuff, Dan. So, you know, we're I'm kind of looking at the clock and conscious of something that we could focus on as an example. And you talk about there's the South Bank Skate Park, oh, isn't yeah, there? Yeah. Can you tell us something about that project and how in so many ways that kind of encapsulates the essence of what you're talking about? Yes. So... Okay, to go to start at the beginning, but get there very quickly. Um, the problem with creativity, and I call this the Cassandra curse, because creatives mm. are often like the you know the, the Greek prophet Cassandra, who was cursed always to tell the truth but never be believed. Mm. Is a lot of the time the organisations who have the power to make decisions just won't listen to the creative mm. ideas, so the creative ideas just get wasted. Um, mm. It's very tempting to think, and a lot of advertising you'll have come across this, um, is based on the principle of, of um, it's called most, most advanced yet acceptable. And that's based mm. on the idea that everyone wants to think of themselves as being at the cutting edge, but they also want to be a bit comfortable. Yeah. So if the, if the answer is really outside of our systems, then what people tend to do is they try and reframe it in terms that their audience will understand. Yeah. Um, and the argument I try and make is that that's, that's a catastrophic mistake and a waste of time yeah. because in order to reframe it so that the systems that have created the problems understand it, you're never going to do anything but perpetuate the problem. So yeah, what yeah. you need to do is think instead in terms of um, paradigm shift is the model I use. So yeah. where you go from one paradigm to another paradigm and you do that yeah. by by making creating anomalies and anomalies which are interesting enough that they draw people rather than you going into their world they draw people into your world and yeah. so this this is what happened with with the south bank the save south bank skate park campaign um the south bank as you know really cultural area of london 
Um, they've got the, the, the National Theatre, all these fabulous things, now the London Eye. Mm. Um, the National Theatre wanted to expand. It wanted, mm. to build, it wanted to build a series of shops um, underneath the theatre as it comes out onto the Thames Path um, in an area which had become used by the skating community. Um, it's, sort of a, it's a mecca of the global skating community of the South Bank mm. Undercroft. Um, if you mm. go there, it's it's just beautiful. There are columns and ramps and graffiti everywhere, and the graffiti changes almost on a daily basis. It's, it's the most mm. magnificent creative space. Um, mm. And this would have basically been filled in to make shops. And South Bank right. said, oh, well, we'll, 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 just, we'll give you some money. We'll move it 100 yards up the road. We'll yeah. build something new and shiny. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, would, I would thoroughly recommend at this point that all your readers read Tim Harford's book, Messy. Um, right. which is about how building new and shiny things for the purpose of creating creativity doesn't work um, <laughs> yeah. because creativity happens in mess. Um, yeah. So instead of campaign, the, 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 what they did, the skaters, was to put together a very clever campaign. That instead of saying, oh, but we have this cultural appeal to your audience, we're part of the cultural landscape that... Mm. Um, Instead of saying we're part of your cultural landscape, what they did was they, they put together a series of documentaries and historical documents and a celebration of skating culture that had no reference to anything but itself. And they, they invited people from the South Bank Committee along to look at it. Um, they were like, oh, we're not gonna we're not gonna make a case that you'll understand. This is us, this is what we do, we matter. Why don't you come and have a look? And and not only did they come and have a look, but they they were so impressed by what they saw. It was like their eyes were open to something they didn't even realise was there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and not only now is the, the space preserved, but the National Theatre is knocking down bits of its um, basement structure to restore it to what it was when, when it was first there. So, oh, wow. Um, they're actually now both working together. Um Admitting we don't, I don't understand what you do. You don't understand what I do, but recognizing that they both clearly have value to their own audiences, yeah. and so working together to pre preserve what makes each of them valuable to its own audience, rather than trying this cross fertilization that yeah. won't necessarily work and will just homogenize everything. So, so the point being that the skateboarding community were incredibly creative in the way that they decided to approach. The South Bank people. Yes. Um, uh, because it would have been very easy to think, oh, well, South Bank, there's big business, so that we need to get people in suits and do yeah. PowerPoint presentations and all that kind of stuff. And instead, they decided, yeah, but that doesn't reflect who we are. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't reflect our own creativity. And so the creative aspect of that in kind of uh, that context was to uh, not... And this is something I want to come on to. Not think inside the box. Yeah. Right. They thought outside the box. Um, that brings me on to something else that you, you're very, very passionate about, which is the treatment of people who are neurodivergent uh, and disabled in various ways. And the way that their opinions, their potential is so often utterly not just overlooked but impeded by large organizations and you said something uh 
really uh, uh, powerful. Um, you said, shame on those who insist there is virtue in overcoming adversity, but not in removing it. Can you tell us something about that? Dan? Yeah. Um, so, so basically, the, what I have a problem with it can all be summed up in the, that awful phrase, lean in, um, mm. that we hear a lot, um, mm. which is it's the same issue that, that, that we were talking about before, that in order to, a lot of companies say, yeah, we will hire people who are a, a, really, a really diverse bunch of people. Um, all they need to do is to learn how to fit in here. <laughs> yeah, but the whole point of doing that is it's exactly like taking an original idea and stripping it of its originality. Um, yeah. Is the value of people who are different from the typical workforce is the different perspectives they can bring. If you're going to make them fit into yeah. the mold in yeah. order to be at work, you're stripping of the thing that makes them valuable, as well as stripping yeah. them of their humanity and their their identity. So, so I, I guess the way I think of it is that companies and organisations need not to not to encourage people to lean in, but they need to lean out. Yeah. Um, and they, they just need to make make themselves places where whatever you need to do, you are supported to do it. So yeah. so a thing I talk about a lot is the, the spiky profile. So this is right. the bit of me that was, I, I once spent 10, 10 hours speaking to 11 different people failing to order a washing machine because they did not... <laughs> communicate with me in a way that was accessible um, right and that was three days before i won the creative thinking world championship for the second time wow. and so the it's very easy for companies to see things you can't do and assume you can't do anything but it's yeah. also equally easy for them to see things you can do and assume that you therefore you don't have any support needs yeah um and it would almost it's important that people see the things that, that you can do. That's great. That's what, but you also need to see the things they can't do so that you can take those away, support those so that they can do the things they can do. Yeah. It's just, it really yeah. is as simple as that. It's just, yeah. It's like seeing the complete picture. People just kind of latch onto one part of the yeah. picture. And whichever part it is, it, it rules out the other part. And, and yeah. th there seems to be an inability to see in these section. things aren't they're not yeah. mutually exclusive not mutually exclusive yeah there was there was something you know coming back to the the, the box thing there was something you said uh in one of your blog posts i think which is to do with you said something like uh companies talk about yeah they like people who can think outside the box but the important thing actually is to allow allow people to bring their own boxes mm. that actually what you need is that diversity of opinion and and input uh, because the, when companies talk about yeah we want you to think outside the box they've defined what the box is right and they might they no matter how much you if if you've already got a box and and, and this is something that, that that matthew saeed talks about as well in his book um what's it called rebel ideas is, is yeah. if you've got a box then you can push at that box and you can expand it a little bit but it'll still be a fairly small box whereas if you bring people who've each got their own box you'll get a lot more space you're yeah. covering a lot more ground by having a having a lot yeah. of people who are really different from each other and letting them do their own thing rather than yeah. a group of people who are all the same as each other and trying to make them a little bit different. Yeah. Um, that we could carry on talking for hours and hours about stuff. I know this. And, and at some point we probably will, but 
that before we finish, there's something else I want to uh, draw people's attention to, which is you're a great champion. Uh, many in terms things. of things. Yeah. <laughs> for many things <laughs> but one of the things that obviously i resonates with me as well is you challenge the notion of gatekeepers and obviously you're you know you're well known in the in the self-publishing world yeah. of course the alliance of independent authors for challenging kind of what's going on out there uh, and that that notion of gatekeepers is kind of a thread that goes through everything we've talked about and you know a lot of the stuff that you do for a living can you tell us about that dan what what is it that um, fires you up so much about the the, the the like the concept of gatekeepers and how, basically how dare they <laughs> yeah how dare they it's, I, I really do it's, it's, yeah no i'm a fan of, of an awful lot of what greta says and how dare they is definitely one of the one of the things i'm a fan of when she says that um and it comes, it comes back to lack of diversity again. It comes back to, yeah. and it's like the National Theatre thinking that theirs is the only way. It's, it's this idea that that gatekeeping is almost always associated with some kind of elitism or snobbery. And it might not be an yeah. obvious elitism to do with, with Oxbridge or richness mm. or that, but it's always to do with some someone who thinks that they've found the best way of doing something. Mm. Um, and there's always a massive in terms of culture there's always a massive amount of content out there that people like that gatekeepers don't think they should like um, mm. and therefore they don't have access to and mm. that again i guess it comes back to wanting as a world we're in an awful lot of trouble we mm. need a lot of answers and that means we need all hands on deck we need every perspective and that means we need everyone possible with all their multiple opinions and variety and points of view to be empowered and to mm. have access to the best possible tools they can and that means everyone having access to the kind of content that that works for them um mm. so saying no you can't see that mm. because we don't think it's worth seeing is it really feels like it sort of feels kind of stupid as a way um, yeah it's, I, I, it doesn't even make marketing sense. And this is one of the things I come back to when I talk to organizations is if, you are data, if your marketing is data-driven, you will only mm. ever find ways to sell to the market you're already selling to. Because, yeah. of course, you've got no data on the markets that you're not selling to yet. And if you use yeah. that as proof they don't exist, then you never <laughs> it's, it's marketing nonsense as well as moral nonsense as well as yeah. every creative nonsense. So it's a gatekeeping yeah. idea. I can't think of many ways in which it makes sense other than the self-interest of the gatekeepers. Yeah. So that's what it, and that's why I started self-publishing, as you say. And it, it's, yeah. it was very much a lot of my early projects were, were very angry. A lot of perform <laughs> we had a, a troop of performance poets and authors, and we used to go around um, to festivals all over the country, and we would we would basically rant for several hours, um, <laughs> and we would we would we would perform things that no one else had seen before, and that was yeah. what we wanted to do. We wanted to show that there are things out there that you don't even recognise as literature, and yeah, it's one of the reasons on news column for the Alliance of Independent Authors I try and get because. Uh, you won't mind me saying this, or won't mind me saying this, but there are very few groups so close-minded as indie authors. <laughs> um, even within our own community, is 
is this yeah. very strict. There, there are rules about everything. There are rules, yeah. and I don't necessarily even mean rules about what, what's professional or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. You must write in a series. You must write in this genre. You must, yeah. if you're going to, you know, say, even to the extent that, that romance authors within the indie community are lauded because they do everything right, but erotica authors, ooh, <laughs> even though they're the most they're the most innovative people at the technological forefront of a lot of innovation yeah. and writing, you don't yeah. really talk about it. Yeah. Comics, graphic novels, we don't talk about, but that's even poetry, which poetry, which is Ingram Spark's biggest genre, graphic novels and comics, which are the most successful things on yeah. platforms like Kickstarter. All yeah. these things which are massive successes, we as a community, we just don't talk about because we think it's it's people who write historical fiction, thrillers, romance, yeah. produce series, and you must do it like this, and you must write, publish, repeat. And it's it's like we just have all these rules, and it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's so much more out there. So I guess that that's why I really wanted to, to get involved in writing and the writing community, as well as just writing stories, to, to show people there's, if you just open the gates, Yes. There's so much more of value. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, Dan. Dan, <laughs> we're going to have to wrap yes, up. We, as I said, we could, we could, no, no need to apologize. I think this is the listeners are probably going, oh my goodness me, wow this conversation could go on for hours and it really could. I'm just going to have to get you back on the show, Dan. It's as simple as that. I'll get you back on the show again to talk about more stuff because there was just so much stuff there and we barely touched the surface of quite a lot of subjects, uh, but we have covered a lot of ground and thank you so much. And thank also you. thank you for, thank you so much for talking so openly about your own kind of lived experience of, you know, what you've endured, well, which is fantastic. Thank you for providing a platform for people to do it. Oh, you well, well, you know this. It's it's a new show. It can go in whatever direction I blooming well want to take it. <laughs> exactly. No, without any gatekeepers. Without, I'm the only gatekeeper here, Gov. I'm the only gatekeeper here. Dan, where can people find you? Uh, because they're going to be going. Wow, I want to know more about they, this man and what he does and read his book. Where can, where can people me, find you? Um, Rogan Terabang is the name of the company I have, which is it's sort of we don't really do much at the moment in theory. After COVID and before COVID, we teach creativity. Um, right. there, I have a blog on there. Um, I have a Medium account under the same name. Um, so there you'll find all sorts of musings at great length, probably more length than people want on creativity, the neuroscience <laughs> of creativity and how to apply it. Um, and you can find me on Twitter. I'm sure you'll put the link in there. My, my handle's yeah. Agnieszka's Shoes, which is hard to spell, but this was a marketing idea behind my first my first novel that I wrote interactively on Facebook, I thought this would be a great right. marketing technique to name my Twitter after the book. Um, oh, fantastic! So yeah, fantastic. And of course, uh, people, if you know, if you've got any aspiring authors out there, uh, go and join the Alliance of Independent authors. authors. That's the first uh, instruction that I'll give, uh, where you will find Dan on a regular basis. Uh, the the news writing. comes out every Wednesday, every Wednesday at midday right. or, or one o'clock. Uh, UK time self-publishing news comes out yeah uh, you're a busy guy Dan in, in all sorts of areas thanks so much for coming Thank on the show you. it's been fascinating and one of these days we'll find a field and a discus together excellent. and we'll, we'll do a do a bit of chucking excellent that would be that would be great fun Dan thanks ever so Thank much, you very much and uh, I'm sure the listeners would have loved everything you've said cheers, cheers. 
Don't forget to stay tuned for Relaxation on the Beach with Henry. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be well. Hi, this is Henry, and welcome to Relaxation on the Beach, episode 4. And today, we're going to try something different again. We're going to try something that's a very popular form of meditation, actually, mindfulness, called a body scan. So... Don't worry, we're not going to shove you in an MRI scanner or anything like that or send you through an airport security screen. No. This is a way of helping you to be mindful of everything that's going on in your body and will help you to relax and again release you, distract you from all those other thoughts buzzing around in your head that can be so troublesome. So the way we start is, as usual, adopt whatever position you've decided you're most comfortable in, whether that is standing up, sitting down, kneeling on a cushion, lying down in bed. Doesn't matter, it's entirely up to you. Again, you decide whether you want to close your eyes. I think for this exercise, having your eyes closed is probably preferable. But if you want to leave your eyes half open, do as you normally do and just half focus on something else, whether it's a spot on the wall or a view out the window, just be whatever's most comfortable for you, okay? And as usual, we're going to start with a couple of lovely big breaths. Okay, you ready? So we're going to breathe in, two, three, four, and out, two, three, four, and in, two, three, four, and out, two, three, four. So allow your breathing to be normal, steady, and relaxed. And what I'd like you to do now is to focus your attention. We're going to start at the top of your head, on your scalp. Do you notice anything going on there? Is it itchy? Can you feel any breeze in the room? The point being just whatever you notice, just allow it to be. Don't wish it to change, don't wish to do anything to it. Just literally notice any sensation, if indeed you've got any at the top of your head. 
And now gradually let's move your attention down the sides of your head to the level of your ears. Is there anything going on there? Any tingling or sensation? And again, just note it and let it be. Let's come round now to your face, your eyes, your cheeks, your nose, your chin. Is there anything going on there? Have you got a faint smile on your face? That's nice to think about, isn't it? Just curling up the corner of your lips slightly, but again, just be aware of any sensations, any warmth or chill or cool. Be aware of it. Just allow the muscles in your face and mouth to relax completely. And just be in your awareness and let it be. Now let's move down slowly, down across your throat, down your neck, the sides of your neck, to the top of your shoulders. Do you have any sensations there? Is there anything that comes into your awareness? Have you got any muscular twangs or discomfort? If so, just allow your focus to rest gently in that area and just focus in and say to yourself in your head, relax, relax and allow any discomfort to just melt away. Now let's move down down across your chest, down to your abdomen, stomach. How do you feel there? Have you got any sensations around the surface of that area or deeper inside? Perhaps you're feeling slightly hungry or the opposite, perhaps you're feeling slightly full. Or maybe you have problems in that part of your body. Maybe there's a kind of discomfort. Whatever you're feeling, again, just... It's almost like brush on compassion and self-love and soothing and just allow everything to gently relax and all the while your breathing is soft and steady and you're not having to consciously force any of this just use your awareness to soothe yourself and let's now move down across your hips and thighs down over your knees 
into your calves and feel like you're soothing this whole area, like your mind is giving you a gentle massage. And just soothe any discomfort. Note that anything's there, but don't feel like you have to react to it. Just gently respond by giving your body some loving kindness and soothing. And then you move down to your feet. Poor neglected feet. We just stand on them the whole time and really give them the proper love and attention they deserve. So here's your opportunity to let your feet know that you love them, that they're part of you and that you're going to give them soothing, calming attention as well. And now we're going to move back slowly up the back of your legs, the back of your knees and thighs, up into your buttocks. And again, every stage just Note if there's any kind of sensation of discomfort or anything else. Little muscle spasms. And again, if you do feel anything, just allow your mind to soothe them and stroke them. And let any discomfort just melt away. And now we're gradually going to move up. Up your back, up your spine. Up to the shoulder blades. And up onto the back of your shoulders. And again, don't have to go consciously seeking out, but if you find in your awareness that you notice anything, any area that needs attention, just allow your mind to apply this soothing balm to your back and shoulders like a gentle massage. Okay, and now we're going to move back up onto your shoulders and the back of your neck and the base of your skull and the back of your head where can you feel the warmth rising as your mindful attention tracks all the way up. And again, at every stage, if you anything comes into your awareness that needs soothing and attention, just gently give yourself permission to wallow gently in your own loving kindness. And so 
Last of all, we're going to move back up to the top of your head, your crown again. Noting for the last time whether there's anything that you need to address. And now, just relax into your breathing. Stay totally relaxed and calm and feel the benefit of this bathing of self-love and compassion that you've given yourself. And we're going to end with a couple more deep breaths. In, two, three, four, and out, two, three, four, and in, two, three, four, and out, two, three, four. Now allow your breathing to return to normal. Give yourself a little bit of a stretch and wriggle your fingers and toes. Open your eyes and now go back to your day. Thanks for being with me. Until next time, be well. This podcast was produced by Henry Hyde. Copyright Henry Hyde, 2021.